Hello everyone, I'm Hazel Shaul, and I'm here to guide you through the toughest transitions in life, business, and even love. Welcome to Endings. If anybody has to get this, and statistically someone's going to get something like this, it's better me, better me, better me, better me. This week, we'll be doing something a little different. I'm going to put myself in the hot seat and be interviewed by a fellow business psychologist, the incredible Hannah Jepson, who you may remember from episode one. So without further ado, here's Hannah. Hazel is a remarkable woman who's gone through a few endings of her own. So many, we had trouble deciding which one we should cover in this episode. She's a business psychologist with over 25 years of experience in leadership development and executive coaching. Hazel is a great friend of mine and a real inspiration to me. She draws on her own endings to help CEOs, national organisations and multiple parliaments to navigate periods of instability and change. While listening to Hazel's story, pay close attention to how she balances self-judgment with self-kindness by reframing the circumstances in her life that she has no control over. Hazel will share how to put this into practice at the end. But first, let's go back to the beginning. This particular chapter in Hazel's story begins age 33. Hazel has just set up her own business. She was size eight, sporty, and recently divorced from her second husband. And life was really feeling full of possibilities. But things changed after a routine visit to the chiropractor. He just said, oh, by the way, um, can you put your feet together for a minute? I put my feet together and fell straight over. He said, I knew it. You've been to me a few times and you're either really fidgety or you've got no balance, but it's happened slowly over time and you've just compensated. Hazel was quickly referred to a doctor who confirmed the concerns of her chiropractor. And it took him 12 minutes to to go from, you know, doing some very quick uh, reflexes and tests and asking some questions to say, yeah, we think something wrong. And what, at the time, both of them thought it was MS. In those moments, it's like your life falls apart of... What? Uh, th- this can't be real. I can't. This can't be what happens. I got my results in three days. And, you know, there was the scan and it just said, it's it's not MS, it's a, it's a brain tumour. I think I cheered and he said, that's an unexpected result. <laughs> so don't to get many people going like, yay, tumour. Hazel sought a second opinion. It became clear that to achieve the best outcome, Hazel would undertake surgery. And within just a, a, like a week, we were in surgery. And their first surgery didn't go well. They couldn't get it out. It was deeper than thought. But the second surgery was just a week later. Of course, the word you never want to hear from any brain surgery is, uh, as you're coming around, is didn't go quite as we planned. You think, oh, no second one they had to fix a frame and when you're still aware through brain surgery and you're about to face it for the second time and you're watching a drill be passed in front of your face it's uh, hard and being bumped out on a trolley to go and get a scan of the frame that's just been screwed into your head and you feel everything and it's not good the tumor was fully removed the second time round but at a great cost you wake up 
And, you know, you hear there's been a little loss of functionality. What that translated to, I was entirely paralysed down the left side. And I was told you'll probably not walk and you'll probably not work. And I couldn't use cutlery and my lovely photographic memory had gone. Being ambidextrous had gone. And things that I didn't even know I needed or mattered <laughs> had gone. And it's was a very, very strange experience. The surgery was not what almost took me out. It was the uh, infection I developed. So they were throwing everything at me they could, but I wasn't winning. And I got to the point where they just said, oh, you have uh, no white blood cell count, it's zero. There's nothing left to fight with. The, the, it's, it's, we've come to the end. So do you want us to call your family? So you get this news from the nurse. You're in the bed, on your own. Who did you call? In typical style, and I have done a lot of therapy since this. <laughs> no, no, this is a ridiculously stupid choice, by the way. Um, I decided to say, no, don't call them, because I don't want them sad and scared, driving them through the night to come and watch me die. I either want them to wake up in the morning and deal with that. Or it wasn't true and I would get through it and it would be fine. So I thought, why have them panic? I was being very British, like, oh, we don't need to cause a fuss. <laughs> we, don't even, we don't even drive through the night. I now recognise that sometimes you can't work out what's worse. You know, you make that frantic last call and you worry who doesn't come. Or the... The years you spend convincing yourself that members of your family don't like you, so you're convinced they won't come, and actually they do. And then you've spent all that time wasted for something that wasn't true. So I now know that's part of all of this. It's ridiculous. But anyway, I decided that was it. I wasn't going to call them, and I was going to be okay. Whatever happened, I would just let happen. And I was in a lot of pain at the time, and I was tired from the fighting, and tired from the drugs and all the side effects, it was getting pretty bad. I was ready to let go and just sleep. Then felt someone sit on my bed and I just thought, oh, idiots, they've blooming rung them. <laughs> and I struggled to open my eyes thinking, oh, I'm going to have to blooming entertain the family now because the matron that knows the special code words that means get the family out of here, I've had enough of them, <laughs> isn't on shift. And I opened my eyes and uh, it was me, older, sitting on my bed. And I thought, what? Uh, what? <laughs> of course, the vanity part of me just went, oh, check me out, I look good. <laughs> I'm looking all right in my 50s. And I looked successful and happy. And there seemed to be a calm presence with me. And it just, uh, but I could hear this version of me talking to someone saying, no, she needs to wake up. She needs to know it's going to be okay. And I could feel a stroke in my head and just saying, Aita, Aita. That's the words my German nanny used to say because I was born in Germany. And I thought, only I would know that. Only somebody who knows me would know that. I thought, what? I don't get it. But it was just, yeah, really comforting. And But she said, she needs to know. We're going to have three boys and life's going to be good and it's going to be worth it, but she has to fight. 
And she has to stay awake. But if it's too painful, just sleep, love, just go. And it was, yeah, amazing. I can't explain it. It's my blood, I morphine or a mad brain just going, what, I'll make a fight. Well, hey, it doesn't matter. You don't need to... We don't need an explanation for that bit. What happened after that came to you? What what happened then? You know, what, oh. what was that? Did, did that change the course of things? To tell us about that. Well, first of all, it took tea and toast. It took tea and toast for hours because okay. what happened then was I just thought, right, well, I need to stay awake then. I want to live. I want my three boys. I'm going to do it. What's it going to take? And this lovely nurse came in at the time and just said, what are you, do- what are you doing? Because I was trying to struggle to sit up. And she went, I'll help you to get up. She went, do you want me to stay with you? And she stayed with me all night and made tea. She said, I better put the kettle on. We better have some tea and toast. <laughs> and that is, tea and toast has been my magical go-to solve all things since then. But it was phenomenal. We stayed awake. And in the morning, they did my bloods and they just kind of said, we have no explanation for this. Your white blood cell count has rebounded. <laughs> and from then, I went from strength to strength. I did the physio. It was blooming hard. I still hate it. I am still doing physio weekly. For 20 years I've been doing this. It's annoying, but I do it. And I really learned to walk. I got out of a wheelchair within three weeks I surprised my mum and uh, my sister by walking across the restaurant at them. Uh, The first time I learnt to walk, they forgot to teach me to wiggle, so I walked like a man. And it's only when a female physio walked behind me and went, oh, something's wrong here. (laughs) We need to add something into that walk. There's still some bits I I will struggle, like screw tops, screw top bottles. Oh, my bane of my life, but I can do it. You realise, whatever it takes, I will do it. It's going to be hard. And I'll do it. I mean, I was running the, the business from my hospital bed. Poor John Corson, who couldn't, couldn't even use Word at the time. And I was being taught how to do all Microsoft Office by phone <laughs> from someone in a hospital bed. Go, and all the nurses could hear him goes, no, no, the paper clip. Click the paper <laughs> But I, we did it. And we managed mm. to do it. And it was just the, the, the help and the friendship and the people who showed up for me were just phenomenal and... Yeah, unforgettable. So I think that's the bit that showed me once I was determined and I was determined to live. And I think part of that philosophy is what I've carried with me ever since, which is every day I choose, I choose to live. I've got the pleasure of knowing you, but I certainly didn't know some of the details of that story. And it's it's pretty amazing, Hazel, really. You talked about some of the things that you surprised yourself physically, you learn to walk again within three weeks and gain your strength back and all of those things. But what about kind of the kind of not the physical side of things, you know, the kind of more emotional side of things? What about this ending story came out of it that was kind of unexpected for you? I suppose the first thing is I hadn't realised what did matter and what didn't. Obviously, that um, I started that journey uh, size eight and sporty. I'm now size 18 and, you know, I my closest sport is Netflix box sets. I just, I can't, you know, I, I can't walk to the end of my street anymore. Um, I, my disability doesn't permit me to do that. But I have found a way to enjoy life. I 
started it thinking that an active mind trapped in a body that doesn't work is the worst thing I could imagine. But that is exactly what I have. And I have a life that is good. I found different ways to find pleasure. Um, I ended a marriage board because I thought my life would only be complete with children. And yet one of the biggest sacrifices because of my surgery is I am unable to have children. And yet I've married again to a man who loved me more than he needed to have children himself. Um, we have built a fabulous child-free life. I did get the three boys, but they were all cats. I conned myself. Absolute kid. <laughs> I did think that one day when I was sitting looking at my, you know, George and Zach and Milo and going, oh, I do have three boys. Not quite what I thought. <laughs> But that's, yeah, there's so many unexpected things, things you think you can't live through or with that actually you can and you can find different pleasures. There's a mantra I use every day that's very much about to my tumour that is saying, you know, the space you left in my body I feel with gratitude. And it's that ability to find gratitude for everything I have, not missing what I haven't. When I first was uh, disabled, I wasn't angry so much, but I was actually found it very hard to come to terms with what I'd lost. I tried a type of therapy where it's quite radical and you almost imagine that the person you were died on the operating table and you reinvent yourself as the person you are with the functionality you have. And subsequently came to understand that that's, that's too brutal, that people are whole people, flawed and fabulous, and actually, it's better if you can integrate all of who you are. It's the, it's the sheer acceptance of being able to say, I have this part of me that doesn't work and part of me that does. And it's not something you get over. You know, you don't get over childlessness. You don't get over the kind of disability I live with. You know, every day is like, I call it my little mermaid. It's like walking on knives. You don't get over it what you can learn to do is find a place for it. You learn to live alongside it and with it. But it's all about integration. And I think one of the things that I learn from you is that that mindset, which I've no doubt has, has helped you build the business and live your life the way you have and, and all the things you just said about the gratitude that you've got. One of the things I'm I'm interested in when I listen to your story, because you talked about the kind of how your personal endings kind of paved the way for some different personal beginnings and, and some professional beginnings. And because you talked at the beginning about this, this fascination with businesses ending and how that impacts on you personally, I suppose I'm interested in what did that give you in terms of a different approach to business? What did that ending, because you were set, setting up the business in, in hospital, so what, what happened after that, you know? Yeah, well, when you set up a business in hospital and when you cannot, you just can't, cannot do things the way people traditionally do, you have to think about things like energy. If you have a brain injury, you are absolutely drilled on what they call the three Ps, so planning, pacing, prioritisation... <laughs> And I think those three Ps are actually brilliant for any business owner, not just the brain injured. <laughs> because I think if you don't want to burn yourself out 
and you don't want to end up mentally unwell in business. Actually, planning, pacing, prioritization, it's 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 good. It's just it's drummed into me because my energy is finite, um, my functionality is finite, and I have to decide only do what matters because you don't have the energy or the capability to do stuff that just doesn't. I also find that when you've been through something like that, you really don't don't give a shit about the small stuff. <laughs> you just think that simply does not matter. I only tend to work with people I like, with people who do things that I think matter in the world because life is desperately too short. <laughs> and I have been told I've been dying so many years that I'm now bored of it. I will just live until I don't. It's brilliant. I am outpacing every estimate so far and but what it gives me is that absolute joy of it the true joy of it I'm not missing moments and so I don't want to run a business and feel like oh when the business is over I'll stop and enjoy my life I have to be able to do both I've got to have a business I love and a life that if it all ends tomorrow I feel it's been a good one and it's been a happy one, and it has. So I think that's always been a philosophy, that I have great holidays, I use my best china, I go out in my best jewellery, <laughs> I don't care. It's like, what the heck? Um, you know, it's just a, a sense of enjoying. It is incredibly, and I don't mean this to sound cliched or, or in any way trite, but um, it's incredibly inspiring, you know, as someone who's setting up a business that that, comment that you just made about work and then start to enjoy my life and people say to me you know well you could just have some more stability in a quote-unquote normal job and I see people like you and I think no it might be hard but actually at the moment I'm enjoying my life and my work together. I also think one of the things that I I noticed as you were talking then maybe the mindfulness gurus will think differently but I feel like I learned a lot about mindfulness from you way before people were talking about mindfulness, right? So you just said then, you know, you don't sweat the small stuff and you don't kind of worry about the small things, but there must be moments when you're like, it's threatening to to drag you down, whatever it is, some trivial thing. I'm interested in what it is that you connect with then to, to get back quickly into that positive mindset of this bit doesn't really matter. So and there's always those moments of overwhelm where... You just think, oh my goodness, this is... Usually it's like paperwork, something in the business that you think, what am I doing? Tenders, that can do it to me every time. <laughs> Where Sometimes you do have to think, okay, so so what if I didn't do it? But I just, I just trust in the universe. I just trust that I'm going to live as good a life as I can. I try and be a good person. I don't harm anybody or anything. So can I trust that it will be okay? And if it's going to be okay, then let it go. So the the, let, the capacity to let it go, which is the mindfulness of this thing that is worrying me or this thing that's bothering me, the ability just to stop and breathe and think, right, what's gone? It's gone. It's too late. It's done. So that's the past. And what hasn't happened, well, it hasn't happened yet. And that's the future. So... Let's not worry about it. But to stay in the moment, one of the things I have for my business, and, and it's something I, I have on my desk at home, I have this tiny pebble. It's a polished pebble that I hold in my hand. And it's been obviously worn away 
over so many, probably, you know, hundreds of years to this tiny pebble. And I always think this probably started as a cliff. <laughs> it gets worn away and worn away. This tiny little polished pebble. But I think of it as my business. And I look at it and go, it's small and beautiful and it suits me. It fits my hand. And I can wrap my hands around it and I can hold it. So, And it is mine. So no, it's not the grandest. It's not the biggest. It's never going to be some major Fortune 500. It's, but it is mine and I built it. And I can hold it in my hand. And it's that ability of to sort of be able to hold on to something tangible. And so I have that little physical representation of my business and think, yeah, this this I built. This is mine. It's good. And I will, I can hold it. And you put it down and that's the other side of it. It's also to know, and it's not me. Because the other bit of it is separation. It's to be able to know. And even if I lost it, it is not me, because I'm still here. I'm creative. I can do other things. And yes, I'm, I always get worried when you think I'm 56 years old now. You know, who on earth is going to give me a job? I'm probably unemployable, but <laughs> what the heck? I will be okay. So, yeah, I think there's, it is the mindfulness. I love music. I find getting lost in music is my absolute happy place. And it's the crank the music up dance, sing, but sometimes just, for, for me, for a particular a certain classical music, I can really just lose it, anything, I love it. I'm also an absolute lover of poetry, so I can just get lost in beautiful words and just listen to it and think, oh, occasionally you just think, being able to see something life-affirming online, because I think there's so much content that's, makes me worry about humanity sometimes. That I like kind of collecting things that just make me watch and go, actually, there's some beautiful people that do wonderful things. I was seeing something just, just the other day or two about the barber that shaved his own hair off to make a cancer person feel better about having their hair shown. And you think, oh my goodness, that, that's a, a customer who's just come in. But they're obviously devastated at losing their hair and it did it as an act of solidarity. And I think, that's human beings. We can also be magnificent and I love that. And I just like taking those moments of seeing what's possible. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that story with me, with everybody. Um, as I say, I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a rare person that can turn something like that into what you've built and what you've, who you are and I think it's incredible so thank you for sharing it I guess just to sum it up I suppose and bring us to a close you've got your mantra but what's the biggest kind of lesson what's the lesson you'd share with people that you've learned from the life you've lived find your joy find your joy and find your tribe the one thing about living with disability and um, particularly when it's chronic pain or something like that is you need it, I believe it's really important to find the capacity for self-compassion and self-kindness because only when you can learn those three Ps and and be okay that you can't work the way other people can doesn't mean you're not valuable. It doesn't mean you don't you don't matter. 
you know, as a disabled person, I have the same value as an able-bodied person. And I am a really strong and passionate advocate for disability rights. As anybody else who knows me would know, I can get about quite gobby on the subject. It's being able to advocate for your rights, but also know what you cannot do and be okay with that. And that's the kindness part. I think it takes a lot of self-compassion and a lack of judgment. It's very easy to judge yourself and beat yourself up for what you can't do rather than focus on what you can do and get that attitude. I think the other thing I learned is that not trying to just get over stuff. It's be okay that some of this is genuine loss and trauma and you just need to find a place for it in your life. And if you can find a place for it, you will find a way to live with it. But yeah, ignore anyone who tries to tell you, just get over it. I mentioned about compassion, and I thought it would be worth just exploring this a little bit deeper. So compassion, the best definition I've heard is try not to think you have to stand in someone else's shoes, but to listen as somebody describes what it's like in their shoes and believe them, even if it doesn't chime with your experience. And the reason that's so important is when somebody's had a difficult diagnosis or they are wrestling with a chronic condition, it's very tempting to try and use empathy to match it to your own experience. But actually, the person just wants you to listen because there's nothing more frustrating if you are coming to terms with a a difficult health condition that everybody tells you about their Uncle Bob or their Nana's version of that condition and you think, no offence, but I don't care. I just want to tell you about my experience. So just listen and hear how they feel about it because it might surprise you. Some people think very differently than you might expect. Now, when it comes to self-compassion, the nicest equation that I've come across was uh, one I learned in my training, which was that compassion plus distance minus judgment equals love. And when you are a little too close to the situation, you tend to find that that distance in the equation is not great enough and you're too close to the situation and you judge yourself of I should be better and I should be able to do these things and I can't do it and I'm judging yourself. It's very hard to show any self-love in that situation. When you can have the compassion to say, right, what is my life like in my shoes? No one else can judge that other than me. And can I look at the situation from sufficient distance to have perspective? Because it may be bad now, but it won't be bad forever. The other mantra I have to say I personally use a lot is this too shall pass because yes, there are times when pain's quite bad, but you know, there's great meds and it will pass. You know it won't last forever and that's often how you get through the more intense phases of it. But you find the distance at which to look at a situation to say in the scale of a life, I've had 20 years more than anyone thought I would have. So that distance permits a different level of compassion. And then you get to judgment, that when you can drop the judgment, personally, I think if we didn't judge anybody, but particularly ourselves, the world would be a more loving place. Because that ability just to say, I don't judge myself, I'm doing the best I can. And that 
again increases compassion and the whole cycle improves because the dropping the judgment is what am I capable of today? And then each day, maybe I'll do a bit more. Maybe I can do a bit better, but I'll do the best I can. And it's enough because I'm enough. And all of those things just keeping a a healthy cycle of self-compassion holding the situation at sufficient distance to retain perspective and no judgment whatsoever on what you can or can't do, well, that's enough love. And all of this has been able to reframe things, to see things differently, that when things feel a bit dark or difficult to see, well, it won't always be this way or there might be a different way of seeing the situation, that yes, I might not be able to do X, but I can do Y. Or I may not be able to do X as well as I used to, but that doesn't mean I can't do it at all. I funded my way through university with figurative painting, so I used to be a a very good artist. Uh, I have a tremor now, so I can't hold a paintbrush properly. But I started to experiment, well, what can I do creatively? And weirdly, I found I can knit. (laughs) It's bad, it's really bad, but I enjoy it. There's some very dodgy things get made, but it's... It's kind of comforting and repetitive. So you're finding things you can do. You also, I would say, find your tribe because by finding people who share your experience, it makes that lack of judgment and the compassion a little easier because you're finding people who have that shared language, who know what you know, who understand the journey you've been on, where you don't need to explain. They understand. It's really helpful to find those people. It's the one thing I regret most is after my surgery, I because of my treatment, I didn't actually uh, join any groups. I didn't get that support and I regret that because I would have found out a lot sooner what was and was not typical of people with a brain injury if I'd been able to do that. And my final tip I would say in this situation is all around integration. And I mentioned before about this idea of integration of loss. So whether that loss is loss of functionality and disability or loss of your sense of self and identity as you change when you're dealing with long-term health conditions or of grief, that loss of with things like um, not being able to have children, rather than trying to push yourself to get over it like it's a line in the sand, but rather seeing it as it is a part of you and it is a part of you that you can put to one side and you can learn to walk alongside and live with. And when it's very raw and it's big and it's and it's hard and it's hard to ignore, like a bit of a noisy neighbour, that's okay. But it will get quieter to the point you can simply like carry it in your pocket. Know that every now and again it might flare up and something might trigger it, and that's okay. It will quieten again and it'll go back to being something you can comfortably live with. But what you're not doing is denying an important part of yourself, that something actually makes you stronger, makes you who you are. It will give you something maybe unexpected. And that's the bit to um, be prepared for, that even things that we see as losses sometimes open the door to a new beginning. And that's an interesting part of being human. Thank you so much to Hannah for suggesting the idea of turning the tables and uh, interviewing me. Uncomfortable as that was. But yes, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and she, she did a great job. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Endings. If you'd like to share your thoughts, I really would love to hear them. And you can reach me at HazelCS on Twitter or LinkedIn. 
If you are interested in understanding the endings happening in your own life a little better, I've the perfect thing for you. It's my five-step worksheet developed specifically for listeners of this podcast and based on years of my research. This first step will only take you 20 minutes and will bring you a lot closer to understanding how to make difficult decisions around endings. Click the link in the show notes to download your Thriving Through Endings worksheet now. And finally, if you know somebody who might benefit from hearing about coming to terms with disability or childlessness, please share this episode with them. I'm Hazel Shaw, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode of Endings.